Hi, I'm Chris. Hey, everybody. I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. This is the seventh month of the year, and we were trying to think of the best movie to do, and of course, it had to be... Six. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the underrated six. No, we tried to talk about six, but ultimately, we couldn't really, you know, decide on what to talk about, so we went with... Seven. That's right. (laughs) Uh, directed by David Fincher, and I think is a integral part of our horror upbringing. Yes, we definitely wanted to cover Seven. It was definitely on both of our lists that we wanted to deep dive into because there's just so much to talk about. That's right. We are super close to the anniversary of this podcast, and we started off talking about Copycat. And when we were looking through some of the movies that we had both, you know, put on the list of things we wanted to deep dive into, Seven was right there. And I mean, I think that it's pretty clear at this point that Chris and I have an affinity for the like crime thriller subgenre of horror or horror adjacency. And Seven is just like prime for talking about Seven, stylized as Seven with a number seven for the V stupid, (laughs) which makes it a little hard to search for. Well, anyway, it's a 1995 American crime thriller film. Although the exact subgenre is debatable in my opinion. Agreed. It's directed by David Fincher and written by Andrew Kevin Walker. It stars Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Kevin Spacey. It tells the story of David Mills, played by Brad Pitt, a detective who partners with the retiring William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, to track down a serial killer, who we find out is Kevin Spacey, who uses the seven deadly sins as a motif in his murders. The music for the film was composed by Howard Shore, Yay. with an instrumental by Nine Inch Nails' Closer, featured prominently during the opening credits. And I love that version of Closer, and I think we'll talk about that later on, probably. Interestingly, on a side note, the special effects makeup for the film was done by Rob Botton, who also worked on films like The Thing and Total Recall. And he was also a runner-up for the Brightest Flame Award for Best Makeup Effects Artist on That's our right. Patreon. Yeah. And of course, uh, he's also continuing to work. He's worked on Game of Thrones and things like that. So good on him. And without further ado, this is Seven or S- Number Seven N. <laughs> <laughs> do you like what you do for a living? These things you see? You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I've worked homicide five years. Not here. Now, we have ourselves a homicide. They're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Body was found on Tuesday morning. I hate this city. We're going to get who did this. This will be the very definition of swift justice. 
There are two more bodies, two more victims. This guy is methodical, exacting, and worst of all, patient. He's laughing at us. He had a gun. He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. Let's finish it. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow. Have you ever seen anything like this? No. Seven. Detective William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, is due to retire from the police force in seven days when he's partnered with David Mills, played by Brad Pitt, a learning disabled make-a-wish kid. I'm sorry. A small town detective with big city aspirations who's just moved to the city with his wife, Tracy, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Idealistic and short-tempered, Mills is the opposite of Somerset who is quiet and methodical. The two are called to a filthy apartment where a very obese man has died while eating a plate of spaghetti face first. The scene is puzzling, and Mills feels belittled when Somerset treats him like a rookie. Later, the medical examiner explains that the man continued eating until his stomach burst, with strong evidence that he was held at gunpoint during the process. Ladies and gentlemen, we have ourselves a homicide. (laughs) (laughs) While presenting information to the police chief, played by R. Lee Ermey, Somerset asks to be reassigned, fearing that he will not be able to finish the case before retiring. He's told to remain on the case, however, but Mills is reassigned. Mills begins to work a case involving a prominent defense attorney who bled to death after he was forced to remove a pound of flesh from his body. The word greed is written on the floor in his blood. When small pieces of plastic are found in the stomach of the obese man, which were fed to him, Somerset returns to the scene and discovers a quote by John Milton from Paradise Lost, tacked behind the refrigerator along with the word gluttony, written in Greece. Somerset pontificates to Mills and the chief about the seven deadly sins, and warns that the two crimes are connected and are just beginning. He goes to the library to research, and provides Mills with a list of books to help with the investigation, all of which are way beyond his comprehension. Cliff notes, anyone? (laughs) That was so funny. Tracy invites Somerset over for dinner, and afterwards, the two detectives go over the clues of the murders. When they finally notice that a picture of the attorney's wife has her eyes circled in blood, they decide to have her look at the photos of the scene to see if anything's out of place. She weepily tells them that a painting is hung upside down. Upon investigation, there is a message behind the painting written in fingerprints, fingerprints that belong to a known drug-dealing child molester. Assuming they have their man, the detectives, along with the SWAT, converge on the suspect's apartment. When they enter, they find a corpse tied to the bed with a bunch of air fresheners hung from the ceiling with care. A series of photographs of the suspect show that he's been laying in the bed for exactly a year to the day. A SWAT guy leans in to pass a little post-mortem moral judgment, and to everyone's surprise, the suspect jumps to life. (gasps) So disgusting. Yeah, really. (laughs) A reporter in the stairwell of the apartment takes Mills' picture before Mills angrily chases him away. Later at the hospital, a doctor tells the detectives that the victim, representing Sloth, 
will not be able to give them any information as he is near death and has chewed off his own tongue. Later, Tracy invites Somerset to meet her for coffee as she is very lonely and has no friends in the city. There, she confides in him that she's pregnant, but seems unsure of how she wants to proceed. Somerset tells her that she should only tell Mills if she decides to keep the baby. On a hunch, the detectives contact an FBI agent who turns over the illegally gained library records of anyone who has checked out books about the seven deadly sins. One name stands out, John Doe. They head to his apartment to question him, but as Doe approaches his front door, he finds them first. He runs, and Mills gives chase, but Doe ultimately gets the upper hand and holds Mills at gunpoint but spares his life. Later, searching Doe's apartment, they find that it contains hundreds of written notebooks detailing his madness, and the detectives find two other clues, a receipt for a custom piece of leather work and a picture of Mills chasing away the reporter from the previous crime scene. He was the reporter all along. They receive a phone call from Doe, who says that he admires them, but he'll have to ramp up his process because of this little setback. The detectives learn that the piece of leatherwork is actually a large strap-on harness with a knife for a dildo, but are too late to save a sex worker that's killed when a man is forced at gunpoint to wear the item and have sex with her, signifying lust. The following day, they're called to a scene of a fifth murder, a model whose face has been mutilated. She was given the choice to call for help and live disfigured, or take pills and commit suicide. Her death represents pride. Returning to the police station, John Doe, played by Kevin Spacey, turns himself in, covered in the blood of an unidentified victim. Doe offers to take the detectives to the final two victims and confess to the crimes, but only under his very specific circumstances. Otherwise, he will plead insanity and never be brought to justice. With Doe in the car and a fleet of police following them, the detectives follow his directions out of the city to a remote desert location. They have a conversation where Doe sort of explains his rationale behind a series of murders. At 7 o'clock on the seventh day after the murder started, they reach the location specified by Doe and exit the car. A delivery van starts to approach, and Mills holds Doe at gunpoint while Somerset attempts to intercept the van. The driver tells him that he was instructed to deliver a box to that location specifically at that time. As the driver heads away on foot, Somerset opens the box and is horrified. He tells the fleet of cops to stay away, as Doe has the upper hand. Somerset runs to the other two men, while Doe tells Mills that he visited his apartment while Tracy was home alone. Doe's sin was envy, and Tracy had to die as a result, by Doe cutting off her head and mailing it to that location. Angry and confused, Mills is urged by Doe to shoot him and become wrath, and despite Somerset's pleas, he does. Police converge and escort the devastated Mills away. The end. What a movie. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, uh, Seven was released on September the 22nd, 1995, in 2,441 theaters, where it grossed um, in the U.S. $13.9 million on its opening weekend alone. Ultimately, it grossed over $100 million in North America, and foreignly, it grossed $227 million. Made on a budget of $33 million, I would say that's a pretty big success. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Ironically, it was the seventh highest grossing film of 1995. Yeah, I read that. 
um, and also, I mean, this is pretty amazing because it doesn't happen that often. Uh, the film spent four consecutive weeks at the top of the box office charts, especially for a horror esque film, right? I mean, so like recently, Endgame did something very similar, but I oh, mean, sure. in this day and age. And even back then, I mean, I think we were sort of at the dawn of what, like the, the, the blockbuster, right? It seems like every week there would be a new movie that came out to topple the other one. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that word of mouth really played a huge part in Seven's success. Yeah. So Anything with a giant twist, you know, that wasn't – I don't want to say that was too prevalent back then. You know, that's kind of been popularized by the whole M. Night Shyamalan thing in the you know late 90s, early 1000s. And uh, this was a significant twist at the end uh, mm-hmm. that people didn't expect. They didn't expect it to – you know, first of all, people don't expect – um, especially by the nineties, I think, you know, we were kind of getting out of the grit from the early eighties and had some lighter fare. Yep. And then we got silence of the lambs and, and things like that, you know, and seven is kind of a return to form for, you know, sometimes the good guy just doesn't win, you know, it's true. Well, and I think that, I mean, when we're talking about twists, I mean, like 95 is a pretty big year. Cause I think that's the same where we also got usual suspects. Right. And so, I mean, like maybe twists were sort of like on the brain and I don't think that we really got a really good movie twist, you know, after that until six cents. Yeah. So the film itself was well received by critics. It holds an 81% positive rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. The consensus reads a brutal, relentlessly grimy shocker with top performances, slick gore effects, and a haunting finale. The film has a rating of 65 on Metacritic based on 22 reviews. Gary Arnold from the Washington Times said, The film's ace in the hole is the personal appeal generated by Mr. Freeman as the mature, cerebral cop and Mr. Pitt as the young, headstrong cop. Not that the contrast is inspired or believable in itself. What gets to you is the prowess of the co-stars as they fill out sketchy character profiles. I'm not quite sure I agree with that review. And I think that, you know, we'll probably talk about that later on when we get Mm -hmm. into like the bones of this movie. So we'll just put that on the back burner. Uh, John Rathall of Sight and Sound said that Seven had the scariest ending since the original Vanishing, which stands as the most complex and disturbing entry in the serial killer genre since Manhunter. New Line Cinema re-released Seven in Westwood, Los Angeles, California on Christmas Day and in New York City on December 29th, 1995 in an attempt to generate Academy Award nominations for Freeman, Pitt, and Fincher, which was ultimately unsuccessful, but it was nominated for one Academy Award for film editing. Which I think is well-deserved. I mean, at least from the opening like credit sequence alone, I think that it deserved that nomination, although it lost to Apollo 13. Um, it received one BAFTA nomination for Best Original Screenplay for Andrew Kevin Walker. It was nominated for four MTV Movie Awards, which may not be the highest accolade, you know, but I mean, that's something. Um, it won Best Movie. It won Most Desirable Male for Brad Pitt and won Best Villain. What's hilarious about that is part of the reason why Brad Pitt took this role was to get away from the quote unquote cheesy roles like legends of the fall and literally for this film seven he got most desirable male from the mtv movie awards and can you blame them i mean we're gonna talk about the hottest guy in this movie but i mean spoiler alert he already won the fucking mtv movie awards so i mean shit um it was nominated for seven saturn awards um it won for best writing and best makeup 
As for the cast, I have a lot of interesting notes based on, and there's a lot more on like IMDb, but I don't necessarily trust those anymore after that long ass list for uh, Alex from uh, Fatal Attraction. Oh have. yeah, you're right. I just don't know how true this stuff is. Um, well, let me have it. But apparently the writer did envision William Hurt as the older detective, Somerset, instead of Morgan Freeman. And I'm just thinking, why not John Hurt? I think John Hurt would have been fascinating. Um, yeah, I mean, I could see that too, but William Hurt, really, I could see. I think that's, that yeah. would be a good casting choice. Al Pacino was also considered. Oh, and no. originally, I think, had the role except for scheduling conflicts. God, really? Which is interesting because, um, you know, Fincher actually said, like, Friedkin was, like, a big uh, influence on his filmmaking, for especially for this movie. Right. So that's interesting. I don't and know. And, of course, he was, Al Pacino was in Friedkin's Cruising, which we just did. That's right. Yep. As for the younger Detective Mills, uh, Denzel Washington turned down the part, and of course he later regretted that. Uh, and according to Wikipedia, Sylvester Stallone also turned down the part. And I keep seeing that everywhere, so it must be real. <laughs> what? Uh, he's barely younger than Morgan Freeman. Like, I don't understand. I know. That would make game. no sense at all. I know. So I'm thinking, like, did someone just write this somewhere and, like, it get picked up over and over? Uh, so I don't know. Was it one of those, like, Take internet, that one with a like... salt. It was on Wikipedia and IMDb and everywhere else I looked, Sylvester Stallone. They must have rewrote it or something like him as an outside from like a smaller town or something, a detective coming in. They must have slightly rewrote it for him. Oh my but God, that would like, have been bad. Yeah, he oh, turned so it down. Like, Good. Yeah, I don't know how that would have worked. Apparently Val Kilmer turned down the role for John Doe before it went to Kevin Spacey. And of course, this is in his tombstone days, so he could have done anything back then. I mean, he was a chameleon. So. Yeah, I mean, he was very good in tombstone. I, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that. I think that, I think that, like a lot of the success of this movie is about the cast. I think that the cast did a fantastic job in this. I mean, mm-hmm. so I mean, we could talk about like the, the screenplay and the words that people are given to work with. And I mean, so this got nominated for some screenplay awards, you know, at the BAFTAs yeah. or Saturn Awards and whatnot. But to me, I think this is a very, very simple screenplay, a very simple story. It's something that we have seen before. But all the actors just ring as much juice out of that script as they can. Exactly. I mean, one example, uh, Kevin Spacey saying, detective, detective. That's all that's in the script, right? And what he did was... Detective. After this, I'm Detective. gone. No big surprise. Detective! You're looking for me. You're Detective! looking for me. <laughs> like it was it was such really a queen well yeah <laughs> yeah he was and actually the producers intended that kevin spacey should receive top billing at the start of the movie but he insisted that his name not appear in the opening credits so as to surprise the audience with the identity of the killer to compensate he's listed twice in the closing credits once before the credits start rolling and once uh when the rolling credits appear in, a, in order of appearance another advantage from spacey's point of view of course as he saw it was that he was excluded from the film's marketing during its release, meaning he didn't have to actually make any public appearances or do any interviews. Now, he's making all these you know, like, you know, like caveats and whatnot, but in 1995, was Kevin Spacey like at the top of everyone's list? He's on the tip of everyone's like acting tongue? Uh, I think he was a little bit. I mean, obviously, because he, I think he was well known for like what you said earlier, Brian Singer's um, Usual he's, Suspects. I was trying and to he think was of the, which came out the first. The twist at the end of that, too. Did that come out right? before Seven? Must have. I mean, I guess. Because Kevin Spacey, yeah. to get top billing above Brad Pitt or Morgan Freeman, must have been 
fairly at the top of his game too. And I I really doubt that. It, that I don't were, remember when like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil came out or anything like that either. I think that was after that. But a lot he had no, a, a string of stuff in the nineties. Midnight in the Garden of Good, that, that came out like around like ninety seven. I was like well into my later high school years when that came out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I when they say top billing, I I can't assume they mean above Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. That, I don't that could know. not be the case. I mean, but if they had like the two and maybe like you know the third one with it, because everyone, I mean, yeah. like so. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's talk about the acting in this movie for a minute, because I think we both agree that it's top notch. Oh yeah, from just about everybody. Right. And we have to talk about um, Kevin Spacey for a minute anyway. I found if we must, I mean, (laughs) as much as I don't want to give him a whole lot of like, you know, time or whatever, but he does a good job in this movie Mm -hmm. and watching it on this rewatch for the podcast. I, you know, sort of felt very uncomfortable well, that actually helps, right? Yeah. Uh, in a way, like, I thought it would take me out more, but really he only shows up at the end of this film. Like, he, he doesn't really show his face as a reporter. He doesn't really show his face as in the chase scene. Right. He's only really does his mass amount of performance when he's being interrogated, when he's in the car, and then when he's on his knees being held at gunpoint by Mills. And, I mean, like, that whole scene with the three of them in the car, I think, is a masterclass of cinema. In, in fact, screenwriting. I think mm-hmm. the dialogue in that particular scene is amazing. And I think that Kevin Spacey in particular delivers a very good performance. I know that he was nominated for the Best Supporting Actor that year for The Usual Suspects. And I remember at the time, you know, because I'm a huge Oscar fan, I was thinking, I was like, why that one? You know, I thought that he did a much better job in Seven than he, he did The Usual Suspects. He did a lot more camera time he, he was basically did. the uh, the narrator he was original suspects so and so I, I mean i see why you know but i think that that was a really good year for him and i know that i have read some things online about people naysaying his performance or whatever just based upon his particular actions as a person mm-hmm. right we had a similar conversation we were talking about rosemary's baby back in january about roman polanski yeah and you know his actions you know after he made that particular movie and a lot of people i feel you know will go back and sort of like naysay a performance or something like that because of someone's actions now. And I mean, Kevin Spacey, you know, as it comes to light is a pretty bad man, you know, but it becomes one of those like throw the baby out with the bathwater conversations. Right. So yeah. I mean, like, can you take something that he's done, which is reprehensible and just say like everything that he's done in his past for art is nope. bad. Right? Because hundreds, if not thousands of people worked on these films. That's right. And I refuse to do that. So, I mean, yeah. like moving forward, I mean, like I don't agree with his actions as a person, but as an actor, he's done really good work yeah, and like yeah. a lot of things yes you know yeah i mean from well, the start you know now. just like anything good or bad any specific virtue or action or whatever is not all that we are that's true you know so this person happened to be a really good actor mm-hmm. you know versus you know hitler also happened to be a vegetarian and a painter <laughs> you know so <laughs> we all have we're all complex everything's gray area you know uh, who wants to work with Kevin Spacey on a film set anymore? I don't know. I don't think anyone will. And that's, I mean, that's sad. I think that he's a fantastic actor. I mean, just for, from that scene in the car alone, showed so much promise. And he we went on to have a very good career. And I think it's pretty sad that no one's going to cast him anymore. And maybe he shouldn't have done all those bad things. But well, good thing that he did all this good stuff before. You that's know, right. Whatever. I mean, but, you know, of course, we'd rather him have gotten caught or been learned his lesson before any of this. But, you know, who knows how many people had to suffer 
On the other side of that, too, I think that I was reminded while watching this movie on this particular rewatch of how much I loved Gwyneth Paltrow, like back in the golden age of Paltrow, right? Yeah. I mean, like... In the in the nineties, the mid to like late nineties, she looked just so fresh and wonderful, and everything that she was in, from like Seven to Heart Eight to Emma, you know. And I was trying to think of like where along the line I started to hate Gwyneth Paltrow. Really, you hate yeah. her? I I think she's weird or the, something. The goop I thing or whatever. I mean, maybe I don't know. I mean, I mean that's just like again, like me putting things on somebody. But it just seems like after that period, maybe after Emma, maybe after Shakespeare in Love. I don't know. know. I've seen her lately. And she's actually like made fun of herself, like in skits and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, she seems fairly down to earth. Uh, She's very earnest about the stuff that she does with goop and everything else. She's weird. (laughs) But she makes fun of herself. I totally respect someone 10 times more if they can make fun of themselves. It's self-deprecating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it. And and, and the thing is that I was reminded of how much of a, a great actress that she was when she first got started. And everyone loved her. And she just like, she could deliver a look on her face, a very quiet look. And she does it so well. She gets that from her mother. That's right. Blythe Danner. Blythe Danner is amazing. She's a national treasure. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, no. uh, And I think you can thank Brad Pitt for her being in this film because... uh, Were they dating? Yes. Yeah. That's the only way she was in it was because he convinced her. And let's talk about Brad Pitt for a minute too while we're there. I mean, I think that he's one of those actors that everyone gives like... Some weird past, too, because he's like the pretty boy, quote unquote, right? And no one expects him to like do a good job in things. Really? I mean, that's how I always got it. I mean, when I talk to friends, especially like film friends, they're always like, oh, it's Brad Pitt. Well, I I knew who he was after Interview with a Vampire, right? Okay. And so I was fresh off of that. And I saw this and, you know, it's just completely different characters from Interview with a Vampire, Louis, you know, versus Mills in this film. And I never really doubted his talent, I guess. And he's done really awesome things since then. Fight Club. Uh, and of course, in Snatch, he did oh, this Snatch amazing so accent yeah. and everything else. Uh, but he's done some great work. I think so. he was nominated for an Academy Award for 12 Monkeys, wasn't he? For I Best so. Supporting Actor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, he he does good work. And he's, I th- he's a talent. I think in this movie, too, I think, like, I mean, some of the lines that he delivers, you know, it, were funny and we laugh at them and yeah. we chalk it up to maybe, like, screenwriting. But I think he, like, chose to deliver it in that particular way. I think way. he could play anything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he decided to play a learning disabled, you know, <laughs> make a witch kid in this film. And he did a damn good job. <laughs> Why do you even say that? I mean, do you really think that he was that, like, vapid or stupid? Oh, my God. Like, I turned over to my sister while we're watching this. I'm like, is this guy an actual potato? <laughs> like, <laughs> he was so stupid. Ladies movie. and gentlemen, we have like, ourselves how is, he, how is he even a detective? Like, I don't understand. He could not connect any dots. He, he just couldn't, didn't get it. Like, he, he had no patience for solving crimes at all. And he's given, like, this highest profile case, like, right after he gets off this one it was bizarre well and i love the fact that they i mean he delivered these lives with such like comedic timing and the opposite of that is morgan freeman reacting to those lines with amazing comedic timing too this is a very bleak very sad looking and thematic movie and the fact that they can have those like one beat like funny moments for like Morgan Freeman just like gives him a look or something. It's yeah. just so funny. And it just takes you out of the moment for a minute and lightens the mood because it needs to. It's a very, very heavy, heavy film. Speaking of which, David Fincher was quoted as saying, I'd rather die from colon cancer than direct another movie. <laughs> 
Oh, after after his experience making Alien 3. <laughs> because the studio literally came in and fired him three times That's because right. he wasn't doing exactly what they wanted. However, after he got the script from New Line, the wrong script, he eventually agreed to shoot uh, Seven. Fincher said that he was drawn to it because it was a, quote, connect the dots movie that delivers about inhumanity. It's psychologically violent. It implies so much, not about why you did, but how you did it, end quote. He found it more of a meditation on evil rather than a police procedural, which I completely agree with. Now, there's an interesting story because the the script he received that he eventually wanted to do was actually an earlier draft that was sent to a mistake that included the head in the box ending, right? Which New Line had since removed. Brad Pitt joined Fincher in arguing for keeping the original scenes, noting that his previous film, Legend of the Fall, had its emotional ending cut after negative feedback from test audiences and refused to do seven unless the head in the box scene remained, right? Mm-hmm. So the studio continued to fight it and attempted to compromise with Fincher by making the head in the box that one of Brad Pitt's character's dogs. Oh. Instead, which makes no sense to me. No. Uh, for the final body count requirement, right? Unless you're counting a dog as one of the humans he has to murder. So, I mean, he says that he was envy, right? I envy your life and like, your wife. I envy you as a dog owner. Like, so I don't know if that makes sense. Dog? I, mean, I mean, like, I would be unhappy if my dog were murdered, yes. But I mean, like, the emotional force behind all of that is that it's his wife who was carrying his unborn child, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, to do that to that movie would be ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, my God. Now, speaking of that box ending, there's an issue that I found online and, you know, with people I know uh, with their memory of how gory this film or how dark and how much this movie actually shows. Example, many people remember seeing Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box, even though there is no version of this film that shows that. I think it has to do with like the heavy atmosphere and the environments the detectives find themselves in. The brief moments gore is shown, it's not played up. It's only there for like a brief second. Even when that guy on the bed like wakes up, it's only shown for like a second or two. What they show is pretty horrific and really well done by Rob Botton. Yeah. But it's not shown for that long and they don't show it happening. You never actually see Kevin Spacey's character, John Doe, killing anyone in this film, right? Yeah. So I think that we all remember, or a lot of us remember Seven as being worse than it is as far as, or better than it is as far as gore is concerned, depending on your perspective. Because even I myself thought I remembered seeing the box, the, like the head in the box. But apparently there is no version of the film that ever has had the actual head of, of Gwyneth Paltrow in the box. I don't think I remember seeing her head in the actual box, but I, I remember the box coming toward Mills at the end. And I know we just talked about it. And I mean, like that didn't happen. He never brought that box over to the scene. Yeah. I mean, the actor's reactions in these scenes are how, and how they were shot, I think contribute and embellish the horror in people's memory of the film, especially at the end there where it shows him like there's a flash of seeing her alive, like in a backflash just real quick. And that hadn't been done anywhere else in the film. And I feel like that's almost subliminal to people. Uh, Do do you hear that? Like, is that a phone ringing? Is it? I mean, I hear something, I guess. I don't... Is that your fucking phone, Chris? I told you not to bring it. If Just answer the fucking phone. Oh, that's that's my sister. She left a, she left a voicemail. Shall we listen to it? Let's hear it. Hey, so... I totally saw Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. Oh. <laughs> no, you didn't. I swear. No, you didn't. <laughs> I've seen a version of that film with her head in the damn box. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. So, I don't know how I was going to get to tell this story. I don't remember how it was, like, somehow related. But I think I was, 
like somewhere along the lines of the only thing funnier than seeing Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box <laughs> was seeing Brad Pitt hit multiple times by a car in Meet Joe Black. <laughs> On a side story, my loving brother um, made me a lovely DVD once with a, I want to say it was like a five minute loop of that clip over and over and over again. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever watched one in my entire life. Like seriously, like on the floor, tears. Because it's a really funny scene, actually. That's a good brother. <laughs> Amen. So that probably made me sound like a psychopath, but of course that DVD I made for her way back in the day had more than it, more than on it than just like a looped version of Brad Pitt's character in Meet Joe Black being hit by a car multiple times. Well, you know how long that scene is before he gets hit by that car? She's always looking back and they're looking back at each other. You think it's never going to end before he gets hit by that fucking car anyway. So. Well, he gets hit by a car. He bounces off of it, hits another one, <laughs> and then he gets hit by another, I think, and then like lands on the ground. So it was really cartoony. And I just remember <laughs> laughing my ass off and just like, it was on direct TV or something way back in the day. This is like 1990 something. And like, I call my sister in and we're just like laughing on the floor at this. Like, and so later on, like a few years later, I think I made her a DVD of it like a little loop <laughs> so she's just on the floor laughing with tears it's so. like that scene for mommy and michelle when lisa kudrow gets hit by that limo and she's like flipping over it over and over for like ever i mean yeah but either way you didn't see her head in the box it didn't happen no right and this movie has like like we said little to no gore it's sort of like that texas chainsaw effect right where people remember things much worse than what actually happened on screen. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is famous for people remembering like the most gory, horrible scenes Mm -hmm. that never happened in that movie. Because the imagination fills in those blanks. That's right. And of course, if this was like the most disturbing film that you'd seen up until that time, that's what you're remembering. You're remembering that feeling, right? And your mind is filling in those gaps. And do you remember Seven that way? I thought I remembered it being one of the worst things I'd ever seen. Yeah, I, I, I too. I mean, I I have seen Seven you know, a good handful of times. I saw it in the theater. I was 16 years old when it came out, and I watched it. Yeah. And I subsequently saw it on VHS and probably DVD later. But it had been a good, you know, maybe 10 years or so since I'd seen Seven before I rewatched it for this podcast. And I was, like, sort of dreading it because I thought, oh, my God, it's such a downer. It's so bleak and it's terrible. And it was not my my experience on this rewatch, I sort of like realized, you know, sort of like the masterclass of cinema filmmaking that this movie really is. And I think that we owe a lot of that to David Fincher. Yeah. What did you think about the look of the film? I love it. I think that, I mean, I, I like that it's sort of like this nameless city, right? Right. It's sort of like Gotham-y. We never know where it's at. The guy who wrote the movie was working at a Tower Records in Manhattan when he wrote the movie. So, I mean, it's all about his experience in New York, right? Yeah. But, I mean, like, I think that he wrote it without a name, right? So it could be anywhere, oh, you know, okay. like any sort of like yeah, large city. Totally. I, and now that, that you're talking about it, like, I, I can't remember them saying it. Now, I just I just assumed and I mean, you know, I did too. I mean, based on all the the making of stuff that it was New York. I think it wasn't until this particular viewing that I sort of like realized because I, mean, I always thought it was New York City too. But and, and then it wasn't until watching it this time I was like, well, they're driving to a desert. There is no desert outside of New York. There's a desert outside of Los Angeles, but it doesn't rain in Los Angeles, so it can't be Los Angeles. Well, it rains, so not like that. Not, not like every fucking day, you know. But yeah, Fincher is quoted as saying he wanted a very specific look. Dirty, violent, 
polluted and often depressing. Visually and stylistically, that's how we wanted to portray the world. Everything needed to be as authentic and raw as possible. The film's brooding dark look was achieved through a, a chemical process called bleach bypass, wherein the silver in the film stock is not removed, which in turn deepens the, the dark shadowy images in the film and increases its overall tonal quality. And I actually remember them doing this for Alien Resurrection and them mentioning that in like the, the uh, making of, which is a very similar look with that consistent like constant brown overcast and those deep dark shadows no it's resurrection is it yeah i saw alien resurrection one time and similarly i saw alien 3 just one time Mm -hmm. i know that fincher hates that particular he might have done it for both but i just i just anecdotally Mm -hmm. i remember that alien resurrection did specifically that left the silver in so i mean like i think they actually added silver I don't know how much of his experience on Alien 3 he's talked about because I just never really followed that movie too much. I know you've seen it more well, than I know I have. the director's cut is by far better. Better, yeah. Than the I, theatrical. I mean, it must have been a really bad experience if he said that he'd rather die of cold. It was horrible. Cancer. He got fired three times. Yeah. And, and it was just constantly fighting with the studio. It was his first film. He never wanted to do it again. I mean, why not go back to shooting Vogue videos for Madonna? I mean, <laughs> To say that, though, I think that, I mean, a lot of his early work is very good. I mean, I know he did, like, commercial work and lots and lots of music videos. I mean, things like for Madonna or, like, Janet Jackson. And, like, his his work is great. The Vogue video alone is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I can see how people would give him a chance to make, you know, a feature film. And, I mean, I know that Alien 3 is not well-regarded by many fans or even as horror fans, really? Spot, but it's been re-examined. In fact, fairly recently, the faculty of horror covered uh, Alien 3, and they actually fairly emphatically uh, recommend Alien 3 as uh, the director's cut. So, and I, I actually, based on that, I actually went back to my Blu-ray, which has the director's cut. I'd never watched it before. <laughs> and uh, and I watched it, and it was much better. I've got to watch it. I have to. There's um, Charles Dance in it. With Sigourney fucking Weaver. Sigourney so. fucking Weaver every time. I know I love her. I mean, but it seems like to me he he starts and with every movie he makes, he just gets like better and better and better. I think that he has grown and learned from himself so much as a director. And every time I watch one of his movies, you know, I just am more impressed by his directorial, you know, abilities. I think that like Panic Room is a really great example of like really high tension in film. I like The Game. I know you and I have talked about that a whole like many times before. And I mean, ultimately, I think that Zodiac is by far like the pinnacle of his work. That is like a quintessential Fincher movie. And it's beautiful, well acted and wonderful. And every time he just makes something, I just love it. Even Gone Girl. Hell, I like Gone Girl a lot, too. Gone Girl is great. And I mean, he he really is a master when it comes to creating a really taut, suspenseful movie. Despite, yeah. like, we you know whatever bare bones he's given. I mean, like, he knows how to craft a movie. I, I even like he... The Social Network. And yes. Oddly enough, uses Nine Inch Nails, who won an Oscar for That's right. Trent, he did win an Oscar for that. Trent mm-hmm. Reznor is amazing. Um, let's talk for a minute about that opening credit sequence, right? Because I think we're talking about, like, how we remember movies, right? And how we remember Seven. And I think that that's what stands out in my head most vividly when I think about seven is that opening credit sequence. Of course that was not originally the way it was supposed to open. Oh really? Yeah. It was supposed to be uh Morgan Freeman's character, I believe getting ready for work 
and you know going through things it was going to be like a Schindler's listy kind of opening okay where it was like taking him like he's putting on his stuff and going to the office or whatever and it was just going to have the credits or whatever over that and later on it was going to be uh the serial killer you know uh basically writing his notes eating drinking tea and then writing oh. a few more crazy things you know is going to show him probably in silhouette or something but later on they're like okay this is last minute we have to do this in 2d how are we going to do this and they basically just scanned in all those notes that took uh let's say two months for people to write because all of those notebooks were real oh that's right (laughs) and cost fifteen thousand dollars to do and so they actually just scanned in some of those pages and did kind of a stylized 2d representation for opening credits my god have those been released for people to read i don't want to know (laughs) (laughs) probably on sale somewhere or someone owns oh my lord i don't know i don't know i love the openings of this movie so much right i mean like when it just cuts to that like crazy music video-esque kind of opening, right? Which I think, you know, David Fincher had perfected. And I mean, it's just so effective when you see the killer like cutting off his fingerprints, right? And writing, it's just creepy and wonderful and really like really sets the scene for a movie in a way that most credit sequences don't. I think today we don't really have sequences like that. They always like start the movie and they're showing credits like over the opening of the movie and so on. I mean, it's all we ever get. We don't really get good stylized openings like that. The last one I remember just like over the top that shows all of that was, uh, and there's several that kind of trick or treat is a really good example. Yes. That's a really good opening sequence. Drag me to hell. has an amazing opening sequence. You're right. And even a teaser, you know, before Mm -hmm. it, and uh, so there's there's a lot, and a lot of them are actually in horror movies now. So, well, maybe people are looking back to Fincher and like, I maybe, mean, yeah, I mean, so because I, I I think that I mean he's a he's a great horror director, even though I no but one of course will call back that. in the day that it harkens back to the old school or films where everything had the overtures and things like that, right? And so it would have been either illustrations or just you know uh, fancy title cards and things like that, you know, as backdrops. I mean, when you have that, you know, Nine Inch Nails version of Closer, I think like there's a there's a version of it you can listen to. It's called like Closer Precursor or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's great. Um, there's a song from this movie too that I remember as a kid. Um, it was on the soundtrack. It was by a band called Gravity Kills, right? And the song is called um, Guilty, hmm. and it was on the soundtrack. It's never in the movie, but they always like, you know, sold it that way when it was on the radio. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I listen to that song all the time. So, I mean, the, the sound of this movie is, is fantastic along with the way that it looks. I do want to talk about a little bit just, um, we, we had mentioned about how, how I feel that this is sort of a bare bones screenplay. I think that, I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of new here. I think the storyline is very, very basic. I think that he took a basic storyline and he threw a curveball in and said, Hey, we're doing a seven deadly sins thing. But other than that, everything is, well, that's the script and that's what attracted him. Yeah. And then of course he had to fight for the original script and then he shot it the way he did. You know, the colors are, I mean, almost every white color in the film is actually kind of dinged down into that brown overcast due to that film process. I mean, even the props in Gwyneth Paltrow's apartment and the other apartments were yellows and browns and things like that. And even the blues in this film start to look taupe, you know. Mm. So it's just it's really interesting because the look of the film, not even just the process of the film itself, but the look of the film is very deliberate down to the props. So 
And I mean, like, there are some things in that apartment, like that painting that's above Brad and Gwyneth's mantle, right? Where there's like, it's just some random French painting that seems out of place or whatever. There's a couple of things that are pops of color, especially around Gwyneth Paltrow. There's lighter and she's wearing white in the first time we see her. Right. So that was very interesting to me where everyone else is wearing browns and blacks and grays and she's wearing bright white. Even in her apartment, though, it's seeping in this brown yellowish color. Oh my God. So it's really interesting. Like fucking chills when you said that. I, I swear to God, because it's, you're right. I mean, cause when they, when we see Gwyneth Paltrow, she's like almost devoid of makeup. Right. She's like very fresh, very pale, very there, you know, like just quiet and, and bright in a world that's very dark and rainy and terrible. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's an amazing sort of direction to to go through. I mean, I just, my God, I'm just like. They definitely made her kind of a beacon of light, maybe a source of hope for the film that there's still some innocence, that there's still some decency. And they crush that by the end, you know? And I have heard some people say that they don't like that. They, they don't like to like get involved in a character or get to know a character or love a character only to have them become a victim. I think that we have talked about that before. We talked about copycat. In fact, that, you know, the sort of the reason that we had a gay character was for them to be killed off. I mean, do you think that Gwyneth's character, Tracy is that purpose? I mean, we, we, we have to get to like her before she's ultimately murdered. Right. I mean, do they have to go out of their way to make her such a beacon of light in a dreary world only to make her death seem that much more If I was making it, I'd do the exact same thing. I mean, I probably would too. I, I, I have no problem with that. And I don't know why people say that. I mean, like, People are like, I, I hate to get to know a character or love a character only to have them killed off. This is what happens in movies. This is what happens in horror movies. I mean, if you don't like the characters, there's nothing for you to be involved in the movie with. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, in a horror movie or even a crime thriller, if that's what you want to call it, that has to happen. You know, people have to die. And I mean, I think that Tracy, is she really the only victim of Doe that he actually killed? I mean, because the man sort of ate himself to death, right? We don't know. It's alluded to, but I would say yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he killed them. Let's, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he, you know, caused their, caused deaths. their death. Right. But I mean, his, his hands are pretty clean, maybe. Ish. Yeah. I mean, he's it's pretty a, covered in blood. It's a moral standpoint. He is covered in blood when he walks into that fucking police yeah, station. I so. don't know how he mailed off a package covered in blood. True. But, you know, <laughs> how did that? <laughs> I, I mean, was thinking that while I was watching. This. We found a hole. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was a pickup location. Who knows? But uh, obviously he was instructed. But anyway, how do you feel about this film? Of course, in hindsight, knowing that it was so dark the first time you watched it. And then now that you've seen the hostels and the saws and everything else of the world since then, how do you view this ending? Does it have the same bite? I love the ending of this movie so, so much because it clearly like subverts what we think when we think of a normal crime thriller. We always have a hero and that would be Brad Pitt in this particular case, right? Who always have a love, a love interest and he wants to save them and, you know, find justice at the end of the day. And that's what his job is. And this movie does so well of making a it's, a it's a crime movie and it follows the notes that it's supposed to until the very end when everything that we expect to happen doesn't you know and so he not only does not save his wife or his unborn child he also 
does not carry through justice by killing the man himself. Right. And this is one more thing for Morgan Freeman's character to witness. Right. As kind of a, a salute for his retirement. That's right. Which is a shame. Well, but... and he, he goes through his own demons in this movie, too. I think that Morgan Freeman's character, Somerset, has a lot of stuff on his shoulders, clearly. Like, he's lived a lot. He's seen a lot. And... I think in the course of these seven days, he sort of comes to terms with his past and he reconciles his future at the same time. I think a lot of that has to do with that quote that he says at the end of the movie too, right? Mm-hmm. It's something like, and I'm paraphrasing, the world is a good place and it's worth fighting for. And he says, I agree with the second half of yeah. that, you know? And I mean, to answer your question, I think that, I think this movie is as devastating as watching a saw or a hostel without having the in your face violence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the way that it's portrayed on screen, I think that the, the the makeup effects and the direction, as we've already talked about, are so good in such a way that we make things up, you know, that we think it's gorier or stranger or scarier than it really is. Yeah. And I mean, possibly more effective. I don't know. I think that people like Eli Roth probably have looked back to Fincher when they make their own movies. You know, they just do it in a different way. It's just, it's hard to compare those two movies anyway, or those two styles of filmmaking. This is certainly yeah. not a torture porn kind of movie. No. And speaking of comparison, there's a lot of interesting character contrasts as well, right? So we have not only the contrast between, or the obvious contrast between the experienced and maybe uh, jaded detective, mm-hmm. um, you know, Somerset versus Mills, which is the naive kind of more innocent um, learning disabled character and <laughs> make a wish. And, uh, and, but I, I find in a way, especially in that car scene at the end where John Doe is talking, mostly talking with Mills, but there's a brief interaction between John Doe and Somerset, Morgan Freeman's character. And that made me think that based on their, their discussion and their judgment of apathy, they're really two sides of the same coin, Right. You said Somerset and Doe? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because one is going to do something about it by teaching the world, preaching to the world, right, about these sins and to stop becoming, you know, stop being empathetic versus Morgan Freeman is more of a resigned feel towards it, I think. Yeah. You know, he, that's just the way the world is. He's resigned to it. He's done his bit for king and country, so to speak, and he's going to move on. Right. You're absolutely right. That's that is the perfect thing to say about those two people. And I mean, it's not like Morgan Freeman's character, Somerset, didn't take action when he needed to. But I think that you can see like over time how much of the things that he's seen and had to deal with has affected him. Yeah. Because he he says to his boss, the chief, and he was like, this can't be my last case. He was like, I cannot leave this unsolved. And I, I think it goes to show you like how much he has tried to affect the world in a certain way, the similar way that, that John Doe does. Mm-hmm. I love that scene in the car between the three of them. I think that that dialogue is so well written and well acted and well spoken well I think. shot yes i mean it's just it's an amazing piece of cinema and the differences between the two detectives mills and somerset and how they treat john doe is i mean just like it wraps up the entire movie so well i mean like i think we know that these people by the time that they get into that car you know i think we even know doe by the time he gets into that yeah, car they're really thinking they're really just sitting around talking it's really hard with these scenes where characters are just sitting around talking about the plot and they really are kind of putting you know in end cap 
on the thematic you know exposition of the of the film before it ends and it's really done so expertly that you don't realize it's happening right yeah. it's just putting these thoughts into your head so that you can think about them setting you up to leave the theater well and i think also too i think that 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 conversation that they all have in that car sort of sets up the ending to the movie i mean cuz i mean ultimately you would like to think that mills would not be the person to shoot that person he would like to like know that his wife is dead and say i'm taking you to justice right but we already have a conversation with them in the car and he calls him crazy and does it's comfortable for you to call me insane he was like yes yes it is you know and so we know how matter of factly he thinks about this particular person right mm-hmm. and he may have talked all through this movie about, you know, I'm a, I'm a good detective. I want to be a good policeman. I want to bring people to justice. This is my line of work. You know, I'm not just guarding the Taco Bell. But at the end of the day, he shoots the guy. But Morgan Freeman warned him, right? Yeah. Uh, Somerset warned him. He said, don't underestimate this guy. He's not just crazy. You would be stupid to do so. And at the end of the day, he did that. And we knew it all along anyway, because Morgan Freeman has one of the best lines in this movie. And it didn't really hit me until I was watching it on these subsequent rewatches. And he says, this is not going to end happy or this is not going to end well. Something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and that's that's it. I mean, we, yeah. are, we are we are it's going. almost a trope at this point. If you yeah. think this is going to end well, you haven't been paying attention. Exactly. And so. I just love it. Well, I have some fun facts to bring us home. Oh, my God. I always love these. So Brad Pitt fell while filming the scene in which Mills chases John Doe in the rain. Pitt's arm went through a car windshield requiring surgery. The accident was worked into the script. And coincidentally, the original script called for Detective Mills to be injured anyway during the sequence. <laughs> so he's Gizmet. wearing this cast because it's real. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, on his hand. Brad Pitt. So and also all of John Doe's books, as we mentioned, were real books written for the film. They took two months to complete and cost $15,000. According to Morgan Freeman, two months is about the time it would take for the police to read all the books in the film, right? Oh, Jesus Christ, I would love to read those notebooks. I just would, I would give my left nut to but, read what they They probably wrote. just say random crap. I don't yeah. care. I just, just want to like, see it. My dishwasher is needing to be fixed right now. But what was the blah, one blah, line blah, they blah. read from those books? And he was just like. They opened to a, a specific page that was camera ready, I'm sure. you know. What did he say, though? He was just like, I saw a guy and he started, a stranger I started saw a man. I threw up all over him. Yeah, he started whatever. talking to me about the weather or whatever. And I threw up all over him. And I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah, it's got to be in the script. Yeah. In 2001, the Patriot Act gave the government the ability to monitor library records, something which at one point halfway through the film is stated to not be necessarily legal. Oh, and it's not legal now, I'm sure. I mean, hasn't that been repealed yet? Uh, maybe portions. Oh, Christ. Yeah. That's a different discussion. So the original script had a strange dwarf-like woman as part of the forensics team appearing in every one of the cleanups after a murder and hurling foul language and epithets at Somerset and Mills. Are you telling me that Zelda Rubenstein could have been in this movie? Oh, my God. Tangita. I am addressing the living. That would have been. That would have brought me from a four out of five to this movie to a five out of five. I don't know. I mean, so like... This is movie can be considered sort of like Giallo-esque, right? Because it deals with crime in a weird situation. And like Giallo movies always have that weird character, that weird plot line that makes mm-hmm. no sense. And that would have just really driven that Giallo thing home. <laughs> that would have been perfect. Plus, I just love her. Yeah. 
My God. When filming the sloth victim scene, the SWAT officers were not told that the victim was still alive. So when the victim coughs and scares the SWAT officers, their reaction is real in the that film. That is fucking amazing. <laughs> that actually, that scene is always the one in this film that I forget. And it freaks me out because it looks like a corpse and it's actually an actor. Yes. Yeah. And, so. and I mean, my God, it's almost like Jim Henson Muppety looking when he coughs and opens his mouth. It's so good. It scares me every single time I see it. I always jump. Love it. And my last little anecdote is one that I've probably mentioned before uh, in our discussion. But even though he's probably one of the most horrifying and sadistic killers in cinematic history, John Doe isn't seen killing anyone on screen during this entire film. It's amazing. And like we talked about before, I mean, like the idea of remembering something as more horrific and, you know, deadly or bloody or violent as it really is, is an amazing part of this movie for people to remember something like that. Yeah. Well, here at the Film Flamers, we like to ask a series of questions about the movies that we watch, and Seven is no different. So we'll start like we always do, and we will say, Chris, do you think that Seven is a horror movie? Yes, yes. In fact, that's another discussion that we could have had. I remember reading a Fangoria article a little while ago about how Seven was famously one of those films that re- that refused to be called a horror film um, you know, by people doing journalism on it and said, no, this is a crime thriller, right? It's not. This is has body horror. I mean, there's grotesque. I mean, it's, you could say it's the nature of the killer and all that. But yeah. let's face it. This is a horror film. We already know that there's a concept of the horror ghetto. Like, let's move away from that. This is not a crime thriller. This is a horror film. It really is. I mean, like, to call it anything else is bullshit. This movie, at its core, is horror. I mean, like everything that's happening is completely terrifying. The idea of someone actually doing this in real life is, I mean, like ridiculous. If we were living something like that in America, we would all be horrified by what was going on. And to call this just a crime thriller, right? Because the movie itself really isn't just about the crimes. It's about the aftermath or the actual scenes. Yeah, and the studio probably knows about the horror ghetto. And that's probably why they didn't want to market it as such, especially, you know, at the time this came out. However... Uh, you know, even Silence of the Lambs didn't call themselves a horror movie, even no. though it is is straight up. But this movie is many things to its defense. You know, there's there's elements of film noir in this. There's elements of giallo. There's elements of just body horror. You know, and yeah. almost torture porn in a way. Yeah. You know, it's just like a precursor for all of that. I mean, for us kind especially. Of opened, yeah. yeah, Seven kind of opened some doors for it, for, for sure. I mean, yeah. there would not be a Saw without Seven. So, yeah. Uh, were you scared while watching Seven? Certainly the first time, because I saw it when I was fairly young. I yeah. saw it when I was uh, probably a preteen or a teenager, yeah. whatever that came out, yeah. I was 16 when I saw this movie, and I saw it in the theater, I think opening weekend, because, I mean, as I've discussed, my mom loves horror movies and so did I. And so when something opened, we would always go watch it, and it seemed scary enough for us to go watch. And I think watching this movie, I was completely enthralled on the yeah. edge of my seat and terrified. I think I was 13 when I saw it. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's 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 a tough watch, and I mean, I was I was scared. I mean, I, I'm still kind of scared when I yeah. watch it. I mean, I think it just like the effect of the movie, the way that it looks, lends itself to making you feel a certain way, to making you feel a little on edge or a little scared or a little unsure of what's you know going to happen, uneasy, yeah. I guess. Which I think is you know sort of the epitome of a horror movie. Uh, lastly, and I don't even know why we're asking this question for this particular movie, because there's really only one answer, unless you shock me. Who's the hottest guy in Seven? 
I'm attracted to intelligence and I like Gregory Peck like characters and Morgan Freeman was a lot younger back in the nineties. And I'm going to have to say Morgan Freeman, you know, one of the first things that I wrote down in my like film journal that I like to keep when I'm watching movies, right. Was Morgan Freeman looks simultaneously much younger than I remember, but still incredibly old. I don't know. (laughs) It's like, he's always been this like old soul, right? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I get it. I think that, his character is very smart. Yeah. And he's an attractive man. However, I have to disagree. I think that Brad Pitt is one of the most amazingly, fantastically beautiful people I've ever seen in my life. This is not a movie I'm attracted to Brad Pitt in. I don't care. I don't care if he's being stupid or whatnot. I have to, I mean, so like my mom was obsessed with the movie Thelma and Louise when I was younger. And so I, you know, I saw it. He's hot on that. He's hot in Interview with the Vampire. I mean, give me I just, any, almost anything else. By this the time Seven came around, <laughs> I was already enthralled with Brad Pitt. And I will always, always consider him like one of the hottest people, one of the hottest actors ever, ever to be on screen. Mm-hmm. I just love that man so much. Well, there you go. So that's my choice. I almost want to say the most beautiful person in this film is easily, of course, Gwyneth Paltrow, but you know. Yeah. I mean, she is like she's radiantly beautiful in this movie. I think, I mean, I, I don't, she was written to be inside yeah. and out. So, you know, whatever, I mean, take it for what it is. We do this segment as kind of a tongue in cheek. Obviously we're not trying to objectify everyone, whether they're male or female or no, that's true. We're equal opportunity above. objectifiers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pretty people in this movie. That's right. Well, everybody, thank you for listening to us talk about Seven. We really enjoyed rewatching this movie and revisiting it. And as always, we want to know what you think about the movie. So please come to us on social media and let us know what you think, both of our discussion and the movie itself. You can find us at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can call our hotline at 972-666-7733 and let your voice be heard. We will play your voice on our Shooting the Flames episode. So send those messages in, guys. And if you're a little shy and you just want to write something, you can do so at our email address, which is what, Chris? TiredQueens at FilmFlamers.com. That's right. We always appreciate reviews, too. So head on to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review and a little snippet, and we will read that on Shooting the Flames as well. We have a lot of stuff coming up for you for the rest of July. We're going to have a hot take coming up, I think, for Godzilla and I Am Mother. That's right. You know, we already have our love of Mike Doherty out there. We have to continue talking about him every chance that we get. We'll also have a very special top 10 list that's coinciding with the theme of seven. So stay tuned for that. But until then, I think that we have said quite enough. So what? Don't commit any deadly sins and sweet dreams. Yeah, that about wraps it up. Well, we're going to head off to practice our sloth skills. So until next time, sweet sweet sloth dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. End it. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Fuck. (coughs) You okay? No. I'm hungry as fuck. <laughs>